Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Andy Rogers, back here at MedTech Speed to Data. I'm on today uh, with Matt Tremblay from Blackbird Laboratories. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've had a lot of med device uh, startup uh, entrepreneurs, not as many in the biopharma space. I'm really excited to get into what you're up to uh, at Blackbird. So, Matt, you know, for our audience, why don't you start just describing, you know, your background and kind of how you ended up at Blackbird? It'd be good for everyone to to know. Sure. So I hail from uh, the Northeast, uh, Massachusetts. I studied chemistry and got a PhD in chemistry from Columbia University. Decided to go out to California, uh, San Diego in particular, to learn how to apply what I learned as a chemist to the creation of new medicines. So I spent about 15 years in the San Diego biotech ecosystem, learning sort of all aspects of what we call early stage drug discovery, Mm -hmm. both in the small and large molecule space. So essentially taking interesting therapeutic concepts that come out of the basic science enterprise. Um, I spent most of my time there at Scripps Research Institute, although I did work at Novartis for a few years, and we also created a drug discovery institute called Caliber that we ended up merging with with Scripps. Um, And so working at that interface between where academic science and sort of cutting edge innovation that tends to be grant funded work, where that crosses over into the industrial setting. And a lot of that in biotech happens through the formation of small companies that take the first part of the journey of developing a medicine. And then it involves large pharma, big pharma companies coming in and helping to bring those to market. And so I had an opportunity in San Diego to touch um, all the different parts of that progression. About a year ago, we decided to form Blackbird Laboratories. So I was brought into a really exciting project that the Bishotti family office had um, sort of envisioned. The Bishotti family uh, are the owners of the Baltimore Ravens football franchise, um, and they play a big role in the developing Baltimore ecosystem. And so what they wanted to do through their family office and through their foundation was contribute resources to the growing biotech ecosystem in Baltimore. And so I helped to partner with them to kind of conceptualize how we would do that and move my family to Baltimore about uh, nine months ago to begin the journey. And I think we'll probably get into the more you know, the details of what we're doing with Blackbird, but that's what has become Blackbird Laboratories over the last uh, nine to 12 months. Yeah, that, that's super exciting that the Bishotti family, I mean, the guy's a saint, it seems, to, to, to yeah. donate. What I, I did the research, and I thought I might have miscounted the number of zeros there. But, um, you know, $100 million uh, was, yeah. was sort of gifted to, to, to form Blackbird. Is that right? That's right. And so we actually have, um, you know, a, a little bit of a look uh, under the hood there. So we actually have two different arms of, of this sort of integrated initiative to help um, life science research and biotech research in Baltimore. Blackbird Laboratories is 
funded by the $100 million gift that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. um, which we're very excited about and, and so grateful to the Bashadi family. And that money we're using as, I like to call that the impact capital. So we're using that to fund research that has not yet left the university and has not yet become a company, but we're helping to sort of you know, accelerate it across that gap between university research and healthy formation. Mm -hmm. Doing that by funding the research going on at the universities. We're also funding independent research that's happening at contract research labs. We've got our own scientists partnering with them. And then as those ideas evolve into companies, what becomes important is that you have investors coming and picking up, you know, the burden or the opportunity of then catalyzing those companies and bringing them all the way into the ecosystem and all the way to bringing those products to market. And so we formed the second entity, which we call Blackbird BioVentures, which then with a separate allocation of funding, uh, which we haven't announced, but is also very significant, we can make investment into those companies. And most importantly for us is that's a signal to the market that this is an important right. technology a good group of um, scientists and, and, and operators on this company. And, and the goal is then to bring investors from within Baltimore ecosystem, but importantly from outside of the Baltimore ecosystem, outside of the mid-Atlantic, folks that are investing in very high quality companies in Boston and San Francisco to look at what we're building here and invest there. And so that's a focus of as we continue to support biotech throughout the whole life cycle, um, the bioventures piece is really important. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a very interesting model. I mean, it's it's clear you guys are experienced and know what you're doing. There's that, I don't know, fruit on the vine, grapes on the vine there at the university that are just sort of waiting to get plucked. And, you know, rather than, you know, taking that giant leap to, form a company where you need a CEO, you need, you know, lawyers, you need all these other things. Let's just kind of slowly dose this around to help, you know, get that fruit to be even more ready, ripe and ready to be sort of formed. It's, that's kind of how I view it. And it's a great model. I, I, th I think you're doing the right, doing some good work there. No, I think, Andy, that, that, that's a great analogy because I think that's been a focus of what we've been doing is talking to the university researchers and saying, you know, now may not be the right time to form a company. And what you may need is another one to two years of very focused research to create the, the data and sort of the reason to believe that will then draw in uh, investors that can support the development of this technology all the way to market. And you're right, some fruit you take it off the vine and it will ripen on its own. But most fruit actually needs to stay there for a certain period of time before it's ready to come off. And I think we believe strongly in that in that thesis. Um, and yeah, and we're finding, like you say, there's there's also a lot of untapped potential. Uh, Johns Hopkins University in particular is like the number one federally funded research hub uh, or research organization in the country. University of Maryland is in the top 20. Um, and there's many other research institutions in the area that have a huge foundation of basic research and just need that, you know, to help get over that gap phase between, you know, grant funded research and, you know, uh, industry, industry sponsored research. And I think the other key part to this, uh, I would say, is, you know, we're not in Kendall Square, right? So, you know, these sort of companies like Blackbird are, are needed because that, that ecosystem is, uh, that ecosystem of 
you know, multiple exited CEO types and um, board members that can just sort of see it and make it happen over a weekend forming a company that that doesn't really exist yet in the, in the mid Atlantic region, I would say, you know, at the scale and sort of um, the network probably is a better word that some of these other hotbed regions have. Right. Right. No, I think, I think that's an important factor. I mean, what I've been really delighted by after having, you know, gotten acclimated to the region is I think, on the early to mid-career side of the talent pool, I think we, we have an abundance of, of talent in the mid-Atlantic region, um, both coming from places like Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland, the, the PhDs, the MD trainees, um, but then also, you know, I'd say the government-funded organizations, NIH, mm -hmm. NCI, provide, you know, really deep bench of, you know, trained scientists. But I do think that you're right that the that sort of senior level executive management of folks who've done it multiple times, I think that's where we need to build the connectivity with, I would say, in particular, the Massachusetts ecosystem and then to some extent, Philadelphia, New York, um, and probably back to the West Coast as well to draw upon those experiences and those people. And I think we're sort of lucky in the sense of the sort of post-pandemic world where a lot of those folks are willing to, to do these jobs, you know, quasi-virtually and travel here, you know, a couple times a quarter or something. So I think we're, you know, the, the time is ripe for something where you can actually draw upon experience from those other hubs while building critical mass, you know, here uh, in, in the Mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, that's that's very smart. You're right. I mean, it is a virtual world out there, right? You and, and you've got that network. So here at KTech, we've been, like I was saying before we hopped on, very active in, in big pharma, uh, developing devices to deliver large molecules and things like that. And and lately, we've been exploring, you know, cell and gene therapies and other markets, you know, in in those areas and uh, treating rare diseases, cardiovascular disease, all, all kinds of you know therapeutic areas. And one of the challenges we, we have in, in, let's just say, cell and gene is trying to identify, like, you know, what looks promising, right? And so, you know, from where you sit, like, what, what therapies are actually going to make it to, to the market? So from where you sit, um, you know, what, what are you looking for uh, as, as you place these investments? Uh, we'll start there. For us in particular, we have a few different layers of challenges um, to overcome. I mean, we're looking not just at what therapeutic areas have the most current you know, commercial potential, but we also have to look at what's the tractability, what's the feasibility on, say, a one to three year time scale of having, um, I like to call it proof of principle data um, that'll get a larger group of stakeholders excited. Because I think, you know, an important element of our business model is, is syndicating with both other investors, but also strategic partners like Big Pharma. And so, you know, trying to get to that um, data package, whatever the therapeutic area is, to be able to say, you know, there's a reason to believe that this medicine could progress, you know, all the way to approval, all the way to market. Um, so I would say that that's our first lens is really on the sort of a more pragmatic lens of whether it's a platform technology or an individual therapeutic asset, being able to show feasibility. The, the other, the lens that you're asking about is really, you know, what disease areas are, 
you know, of most commercial potential. We'd like to mm-hmm. think that the commercial potential tracks well with the unmet medical need. It doesn't always track perfectly well, as we know. Um, but I would say that because our goal is to enhance the biotech ecosystem, we're tracking closely with what big pharma and sort of as a sequela of that, what venture capital investment, you know, are, are you know, putting their resources toward. For us currently, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a market analyst, but I can give you a sense of what we're looking at and where we think the areas are where there's the most commercial opportunity. I would say, you know, uh, uh, neuro, uh, both in the sense of neurodegenerative drugs, as well as neuropsych. Um, we've got a really exciting schizophrenia small molecule drug, um, which would be a daily oral pill for treating the positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which is, I think there's been, there's been a lot of deal activity in this space for good reason. People are starting to make real breakthroughs here. Um, and we have a partnership with the Lieber Institute for Brain Development in Baltimore, which is one of the world-renowned um, research institutes focused exclusively on neuropsychiatric drugs. So that's an example of an area where I think we have sort of connected to dots between a, a capability that's here in Baltimore, but also something that is a very clear, you know, sort of macro force within the biopharmaceutical world. Another area would be in, you know, sort of new mechanisms for tackling um, immune diseases, in particular autoimmune diseases that affect, you know, large numbers of people. And sort of, I think a growing theme there is the recognition that some of these big baskets of autoimmune diseases are actually collections of many smaller, um, more specific types of diseases where drugs could probably be tailored to subsets of patients to have greater efficacy and greater effect. And I think that's a, another really interesting confluence of drug development, but also basic research into the natural history of these diseases using you know, omics technologies to be able to categorize and stratify patients and have therapies that you know, might have 10 years ago failed in a large phase three because it's very heterogeneous. And now you have the ability to say, we're going to target this subset of these patients and show that we have a very you know, effective medicine. So we've been very focused on that. And in that area, we have um, a drug that we're working on with Johns Hopkins University for Crohn's disease, um, where there's a really strong link between the expression of the target of our drug and a particular um, subset of Crohn's disease patients. And that's something we can evaluate before these patients ever enter a clinical trial. Um, and that's the other thing is you wanna make sure that if you're, if you're putting a patient into a clinical trial that you're giving them you know, a really strong chance of affecting their disease. And I think that's you know, something that, that branches into sort of the ethical domain that we feel really strongly about. So those are two, those are two examples. I would say, you know, cancer, cancer research is a, is a huge area of competency within the Baltimore ecosystem as well. Um, there's been a lot of activity in predictive diagnostics and, uh, there's been several large exits. I would say that sort of actually, you know, stand out amongst the somewhat emergent biotech ecosystem here. Um, haystack oncology, thrive earlier detection. Yep. And so 
we're excited to, you know, we're working with a lot of those same thought leaders who help to contribute to that research and trying to understand from them, you know, what is the next frontier in, you know, approaching new therapeutics to cancer. That might be an example of, you know, when you talk to venture capital investors today, there's a pretty significant dip in investment in new cancer drugs. And I would say this is where our sort of like longer term time horizon takes over. And we say, look, this is still an area of significant unmet need and it's not going away. And so, for example, we're not as sensitive to a trend like that. We're still very significantly investing in in new cancer therapeutics and possibly diagnostics. Got it. Yeah, that was a, that was a great survey, Matt. So you know, trying try to be conscious of time, you know, let's let's get into the the title of the podcast is MedTech Speed to Data. So um, the first question, you touched on it a little bit there, but, um, you know, what data is most critical for you to see when you're evaluating what you're describing is this university research and early data to decide whether to, to invest or not? You mentioned like early omics data from the patient perspective. And w- what about the, the therapy itself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we we look for a couple of things. We look for, um, and and a lot of this is you know big time predicting the future because the you know you don't have the the scale and the resources at an early stage to conduct all of these studies, but you're looking for a certain fact pattern. I mean, I think we're really focused on okay, does does this mechanism does the mechanism of the therapeutic um, have a strong underpinning in our understanding of the disease. We're not focused on any one particular uh, mode of validation. So um, a lot of big pharma companies will focus on human genetic validation. That's excellent, but there's other ways to compensate if you don't have that. So I would say a strong mechanistic underpinning for the therapeutic having efficacy in the disease. The second is a much more practical point, which is can we conduct a clinical study, you know, with, with the tools and the infrastructure available today or within the next two to three years, which might be the time scale when we'd be conducting that clinical trial? We talk to clinical trial experts and say, can we actually, you know, to your point, speed to data, can we generate clinical data in patients to show that this therapeutic works on a meaningful time scale? And so I would say that's our, our second big criteria. And the third which is general, you know, to many such endeavors is, you know, do you have the right people, you know, gathered on the project? Do you have the right stakeholders? Do you have, it's a long road and there's a lot of flexibility that's required. So do you have uh, the right people and the right mindset to, to make that successful? Got it. So the meat of, I think my, my ask on this podcast then is, okay, you've screened these companies that, that sort of three stools of a, of a, of a, um, Barstool, I guess, <laughs> um, for you make when you make the placement. But then, okay, now they're a portfolio company. What does your you've used the term de-risking in other sort of um, mm-hmm. uh, podcasts? So, what does your de-risking program look like over those one to three years? Like, do do every one of these therapies like basically need to go through a clinical study, or are you using other machines and tools out there for like high throughput drug screening? to get you more confident in, in the, in the therapy? Yeah. I mean, I would say each, although there's many commonalities you can draw between programs, like we try to approach it, you know, each one of these programs is its own 
uh, animal. And and sure. you know, each Sorry, one. Sorry, I'm an engineer, not a scientist, Matt. So I'm asking all these engineering questions. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it were that simple, Andy, for sure. Um, so you know, but but there there's a common set of themes, I would say. And so de-risking for us in the first one to three years we're typically not in the clinic yet. When a new therapeutic is identified, new therapeutic mechanism, um, we sometimes call it a therapeutic candidate, we can't just immediately go into clinical studies. So what we try to do is, is mirror that. Um, and we work really hard to find out, you know, oftentimes this is in rodents, it could be in non-rodent species like monkeys and dogs, different ways to assess both the safety, which is usually the first concern, and then the efficacy of the drug. And I would say that we are, you know, trying to be conscious of what we can provide and what other partners can provide. And so to your point about, you know, the interface with big pharma, this is where we're, we're drawing upon our colleagues and, and friends who, who work in that environment, understanding what is the gold standard for data that would represent a true de-risking. Because that's really what you're trying to do is is create a value proposition for those downstream partners to want to invest their time and money in bringing the drug all the way to market. And so for us, that typically looks like, you know, a lot of conversations with them, uh, identifying what animal experiments to evaluate the, the, the drug candidate in. And a lot of those, you know, this is the reason why a model like Blackbird is, is necessary is because uh, those are not studies that are typically rewarded in sort of the academic cycle of publication and grant making. But these are things that are really important to to show to the FDA and to, and to bring a, a, a drug forward for development. So that's that's where we focus our kind of de-risking activities on. Yep. All right. And Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. So. Uh, so since Keytech is an engineering company, we typically are developing these tools, these instruments, these sequencing platforms and the consumables and organs on a chip, for example. So you're the $100 million man. I have to ask, like, what what analytical tools in lieu of rats lab, you know, like animal studies and obviously not a clinical study, what tools do you do you feel like you need based on what you're seeing uh, to help screen these drugs more more efficiently, right? In these one to three year periods, if there are any tools you feel like you need. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say something, you know, possibly a little bit cliche, but I'll try to elaborate it so that it's not so cliche. I mean, I think, you know, that the, that the sort of digital interface, you know, the use of AI and machine learning to model um, some of the more complex processes when drugs interact with the human body, um, mm -hmm. at a systemic level, I think is still missing. I think there's huge advance in understanding how a drug interacts with its target protein. Um, and, you know, so AlphaFold and I could go on and on. Huge investment there um, in understanding how is a drug doing what it's supposed to do at a sort of, you know, uh, just like it's easy to model two billiard balls, but you can't model, you know, five billiard, ba billiard balls. I think, you know, trying to chip away and make some progress at when you take a drug, whether it's an intravenous infusion or an oral pill, all of the multitude of interactions that it has that leads to distribution of that drug to certain organs, toxicity in certain organs that limit the development, and then importantly, efficacy against whether it's a tumor or a neuropsychiatric disease. 
we need to start building tools that thinking think about drugs as more actors on a system as opposed to actors on a single intended target. Got it. So more more AI machine learning modeling of how these just put it put what you're seeing, what you're potentially partnering with, put that into the model and just see what happens, right? I think so. You know, although I'm not ruling out because you asked that really more from a from a nuts and bolts engineering perspective, which I didn't I didn't mean to step aside from that, but you know, there could be ways to fuse those. And so so I don't know, for example. I mean, and you know, I think the, the use of animals um, has significant limitations and possibly, you know, ethical implications. So maybe there are some you know, nuts and bolts solutions that need to pair with, you know, AI machine learning to make this possible. Another follow-on to that, like organ on a chip. Are you are you using that at all? And you know that technology is out there. Like, how are you yeah. sort of simulating organs? We're we're very. I would say I'm personally very interested in that. We're using. We have some projects um, that are using like organ slices, I but I think through that we've found you know the limitations of that. And so I think like in that case, organ on a chip that replicates the features that we do like about a, about sort of a native organ slice would be really exciting. So I, I would say we're very open to that. We, we don't happen to be using it right now, but we're, we're excited to, to use technology like that. Got it. Okay. Um, I know it's early days there at Blackbird, but I have to ask, have you made any significant progress, you know, with, with investments and, you know, I guess showcasing, is there anything you're willing to share there? Yeah, for sure. I can I can give you a rundown. So I described the two different you know sort of funding mechanisms we have. So Blackbird Laboratories, uh, the nonprofit sort of impact arm, we have established uh, what we call master collaboration agreements with University of Maryland Johns Hopkins Lieber Institute, and we funded six projects. So we have currently six projects ongoing where we're sort of incubating concepts that we hope will lead to new company formation over the next one to two years. Those topic areas, I mentioned some of them as we were talking through, they span um, an oral drug for schizophrenia, uh, a gut-targeted drug for Crohn's disease, a gene therapy platform for very selectively delivering gene therapy payloads to a cell type of interest. Um, and we also have an mRNA platform technology and a few others. So those are our um, first set, sort of first cohort of projects. We'll probably have at any given time about 10 active projects where we're incubating a company concept um, and, and looking to bring that forward into a new co within sort of a one to two year time frame, And that'll be a rolling process. On the BioVentures side, Blackbird BioVentures, we've made four investments in companies that are in the mid-Atlantic region. And these are companies that already existed, but that we felt we could help to catalyze their progress. And those companies um, span a range from very early seed stage. We were about one third of a seed investment into a company that's developed a really um, transformative technology for analyzing antibodies in um, in circulation, so you can take a very small sample from either a uh, human or an animal and very quickly understand the full complement of antibodies um, within that subject, which helps you understand what has the subject been exposed to in terms of viruses, do they have an autoimmune disease, et cetera. Um, we've also invested in two immuno-oncology companies um, and a third in the um, uh, immune space. 
So altogether, 10 investments. I think we've deployed about $15 million in our first year. Um, some of that was from the $100 million, um, sort of impact capital, and some of that came in the form of investments. Yeah. Wow, you've been busy. <laughs> That's a lot of progress in we've, the first we've, year. We've been busy. We've been busy, yeah. Um, you know, we also, I'll, I'll mention that we also hired, so I, I have a team of 10 people. Um, most of those are PhD scientists that are working sort of shoulder to shoulder with the faculty members that we're incubating the companies with. Um, and then we have a great support team um, uh, helping us kind of pull everything together. Yeah, on that note, you know, I want to help you be successful here, Matt. So on the nonprofit side, I feel like the investment side, like that's going to, the market will sort of dictate what happens with those investments. But on the nonprofit side, you know, at the end of your one to three year sort of de-risking process, um, what does that look like sort of helping translate that and form those companies? Are you leveraging your board or the the, the foundation or just, you know, and the universities? Like, how, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a process that, um, although it takes time to incubate the the companies, we start that process of, you know, networking and sort of prospecting um, right at the very beginning when we when we identify the projects. And, and even as we're identifying the projects, we're going around and talking to our network of early stage investors saying, you know, is this something that you would like to see mature into a company over two years? We're as a as a nonprofit impact organization, we're willing to put in those early resources and put in that you know, sweat equity to help, you know, de-risk the concept. But if that, you know, you know, suspending disbelief, is this something you'd be interested in investing in? So we're doing that networking um, and really fact-finding very early in the process. And then once we identify, you know, from our network of, you know, 30, 40 possible investment groups, we may then have a small handful for each project of people that are interested in tracking the progress of that. And so I spend a lot of my time going around and talking to other seed and series A stage investors, updating them on the progress that we're making on these early stage projects so that when it comes time, as you say, to launch that company, we're not going out cold to the market. There's been some some thought put into that and some um, some some irons in the fire. Yeah, sounds like you're not to use the same analogy, but firing on all cylinders there. I mean, you've got the <laughs> investments, you've got the the nonprofit, and you've got the the active management of these investments, and and you're advising, and then the exit. So there's there's a lot going on there. Very exciting that it's happening right here in Baltimore too. Yeah, no, we're we're thrilled. I mean, I think it's it's a great place to. Um, there's a lot of fresh territory, and I think a lot of energy to try to bring something like this together. You know, Andy, let me just say one more thing that, uh, you know, we've, we've partnered with the universities because we think this is an incredible asset that Baltimore has locally. With that said, our, you know, our main you know, metric of success is building companies in Baltimore. That technology could come from anywhere. And Absolutely. so we are interested, just for your listeners who may be outside of this region, you know, if there's a technology that, you know, should be resourced and could become a company that might be a an asset that was developed in big pharma that you know could be further developed or accelerated on its own you know we're open to and actively looking for things like that and we can we have this huge network of key opinion leaders um, and and, and uh, experts and research infrastructure in Baltimore that we could use to advance those things so the core technology need not come from Baltimore. It's, it's, a, it's a focus of our early efforts because there is so much of that here. 
Um, but you know, we've, we've been getting outreach from folks saying, Hey, here's a, a phase two ready compound, um, a phase two ready therapeutic asset that, you know, for one reason or another was deprioritized into big pharma, but there's somebody there who understands it well, who really believes in it and believes that it should you know, have a path forward. That's something that we're really excited to talk to people about. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. All right. So Matt, let's get towards the, the end of the episode here, the, the lightning round. So appreciate the introduction here to, to Blackbird. I just want to get your take on uh, the broader market. The, um, what's your view on the sort of the macroeconomic environment right now in, in biopharma, biotech? Uh, you know, has it slowed down to, the, to a halt or are we on the upswing or are we on the way down? Just generally, what, what, are, you, what are your sentiments there? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, again, I'm not, I'm not a professional analyst. I, I try to, I think one of the, one of the great things that um, we've been able to do with Blackbird is take a longer term view. With that said, we're trying to be, you know, situationally aware. I think it does seem like things are back on the upswing. I mean, there's a lot of M&A right now. I think it's like a, a fairly typical, maybe a little more exaggerated, but fairly typical pendulum swing from, IPOs to you know more M&A activity. We do see the IPOs picking up again. You know, my sense is that um, it's the the more startling thing was just how much capital went into the ecosystem during sort of the 2020 2021, and I think it's like a fairly natural rebound from that that we've been experiencing. You know, great companies with great assets and great you know uh, leadership are still getting funded. We participated in two um, hundred million dollar plus Series A rounds just in the last uh, six weeks, and you see a lot of deals. Um, uh, you know, Karuna. We're very excited about it, and I think also it's a good time to have you know an alternative source of funding like us coming online. Um, a lot of people have felt that that was sort of we've had a welcome reception in that sense. Yeah, I, I would um, echo what you're saying that obviously just 2020, 2021, you know, the, the free money era, it was, was kind of ludicrous. <laughs> and so naturally, there's going to be a hangover or sort of a down period as, it, as you come off of that. And, and I do feel like we're sort of at the bottom or kind of on the on the upswing, as, as you describe. Um, it's just probably not going to be quite as um, fast of an upswing as it, as it was in 2021. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, just just like many people, you know, I started on my my New Year's diet on January 1st, trying to lose 10 pounds and you get really hungry. And then you realize it's not that you're really it, it, the startling thing is how much food I ate over Christmas. It's not that it's so startling that I'm eating, you know, healthy. I hate to say that it's healthy what we're going through. A lot of people are hurting right now. People are getting laid off. But I think it's just part of the natural cycle. Um, and I yeah. think it's a it's more of a correction than it is any sort of. Mm -hmm bigger macro trend. Yep. Yep. Okay. Oh, this has not been quite the lightning round, but uh, we're, we're getting through it here. So uh, next question, a little bit of a, little bit of a, a curveball, but um, you know, recently Novo Nordisk partnered with GE ultrasound uh, to develop a bioelectronic therapy uh, for, you know, type two diabetes and obesity. So um, is bioelectronic therapy, bioelectronic medicine on your radar at all? Um, you know, is it talked about in the investor community there? Like what's your take on bioelectronic therapy? I have to admit, I, I don't know enough about it, but it just made it onto my list of things to read up on tonight. So, <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, uh, what 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 um, that partnership is is you know GE ultrasound. They're using high power ultrasound to affect uh, liver function um, to you know to treat diabetes. Um, remarkable stuff. Um, I, I love you know like hacking the body things like that. Um, so I'm just curious if you have some any that's, exposure there. That's wonderful, and I would say you know the most meaningful thing about that is you know if you have a group like Nova Nordisk that knows, you know, what the best of the best approaches are in medicines, in, in you know, conventional medicines, for them to be throwing their support to that, I think is a huge signal um, to the to the market, to the ecosystem. So that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Yep. Great. Uh, one last question. So I've had one too many cocktails in Kendall Square. I'd rather have cocktails in uh, Harbor East, right? So in the shadows of, you know, big you know, Amgen and, and Lily and Sanofi building. So is that like the long-term vision when you meet with some of the, the city leaders and leaders of Hopkins, like, is that kind of where, where, you know, this ecosystem is, is heading? Like we can pop up these global pharma buyers of these, these companies like in the Baltimore uh, region? You know, I think, uh, again, I'm, I'm just a humble scientist and I've been trying to, <laughs> Make it until I make it with the economic development stuff. We do spend a lot of time understanding what the longer term, you know, decade timescale vision is um, or desires are. And I think you're right. Everybody would love to bring in these huge businesses. I think I think the way the path that I see to doing that is trying to build, you know, quality startup companies that are not meant to be you know, one or two year lifetimes, and then the IP is just acquired and, and just, you know, go somewhere else, but actually building teams of people that are functional, that if they're, you know, if they're acquired by a big pharma company, that the big pharma company says, let's actually build a beachhead, you know, in Baltimore based around this company that we've just acquired. Gotcha. And so I, I view that as the, the organic growth pathway. Um, and, It'll take time, but I do think that that's, you know, um, you know, Kendall Square is obviously an incredible high watermark, but a great template to follow. Right. Yeah, there, there is something in the water there. You know, there's just yeah. <laughs> everywhere you turn, there's a scientist or a venture capitalist having a, a power lunch. Um, great. Uh, well, Matt, hey, thank you so much for, you know, making a commitment to, to Baltimore and, and moving your family from across the country. That that means you're you're committed and and, you know, committed to making a difference. So love having folks like you on the show and welcome to the city. Hope to see you around at some point, meet you in person, maybe at a, at a Ravens game. If uh, the Bashadi uh, family is uh, so willing. <laughs> that is uh, one of the, one of the easiest job requirements I have is um, going to all the home games, including the big game this weekend. So I'm nice. excited. That. Yeah. Um, yeah. But thanks, Andy. This was wonderful. It's great talking to you. All right, Matt. Thanks again for coming on. All right. Cheers. All right, everyone, until next time, thanks for hopping on MedTech Speed to Data. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.